Hello and welcome to Office Hours by People Design. My name is Kevin Budelman, President of People Design, and I'm here with my partner and strategy director, Jake Himmelsbach. Hello, everyone. Office Hours. Hi, Jake. Office Hours is a time we've set aside to discuss ideas we're thinking about at People Design and issues that we experience firsthand with our customers. Um, uh, about a week ago, we published a short piece on our blog and on LinkedIn called no neocon now what which you all may have received and we're invited to participate in this conversation today on the surface you know it's really an article about the impact of not having neocon this year but at a it's really about leadership and innovation and so I'll, let me just give you a little quick summary of the article and then we'll get into some other issues um i think that uh you all are welcome to ask questions along the way uh, you can raise your hand and we'll unmute you. You're welcome to ask questions in the Q&A window uh, as well, if you like, or even in chat, if that's convenient. So um, as you all are well aware, um, Neocon is not happening this year. And, um, you know, it's, it's kind of a big deal after more than 50 years of that show happening in, in Chicago. Um, not a huge surprise considering the kind of the craziness of the time that we're exper all experiencing right now. Uh, but the, um, you know, it's, it's an interesting moment to kind of pause and reflect, I think, about Neocon in general. Uh, there's a lot uh, in, to think about in terms of the investment that is in designing and main showroom, as you all. Um, Neocon is, a, is kind of an event that has had some um, evolution itself. Um, we've written articles in the past about how you know, there's the ROI is somewhat uncertain. And, um, you know, it begs the question about how, you know, in trade shows in general and across a lot of industries and clients that we've, uh, that we work with have uh, started to uh, ask themselves about the, the role of physical trade shows in general. Um, and so in some respects taking would be a relief perhaps if it weren't such a huge, you know, sort of more significant crisis that we're all experiencing. And in some, in some ways, not thinking about, you know, Neocon is probably not the top issue. Um, pretty clear that for many industries like uh, commercial furnishings, um, you know, everyone is starting to brace themselves for some strong headwinds ahead and probably starting to think about how to be conservative and, and conserve and protect what you have. Um, you know, my sense is that, the, you know, the economy will recover, um, but it, would, it may be a hard next few years for many of us. Um, but a lot of what we try to focus on in this, in this article is the, is the idea that disruption creates opportunities for innovation. And in the article, we kind of dive into the example of Herman Miller from this industry. And um, if you're familiar with their story, it's interesting to note that, you know, following the Great Depression, um, Herman Miller took a pretty big gamble on, you know, what was then a pretty unproven area around what was, you know, modern design and, um, you know, taking it, taking a risk with some kind of new ideas from designers from New York um, was not an obvious choice for them. Similarly, it's, it's interesting to think about um, Apple, you know, as recently as, as a few decades ago was nearly on the edge of, of bankruptcy, bankruptcy, even though they're one of the most valuable companies in the world today. Um, so it's, it, they're, they're a great case study to look at in part because of, you know, what they did in, in, in that situation where they reduced their product offering by 70% and it launched some very 
new, new for the market uh, kinds of products. You know, these kind of round, you may all recall the, the original iMacs that were round and translucent, candy colored, things like that, which at the time, again, was, was not an obvious choice for, for a computer maker. So it's interesting to think about these two examples of companies that took an opportunity, you know, because they were, you know, frankly, they were, they were, they were in, a, in a difficult spot financially um, and took a risk and it, and it paid off. And of course, people talk about how, you know, of course, necessity is the mother of invention, but Peter, Peter Drucker, who's the famous business guru, uh, once said that all profit is derived from risk. And it's interesting to note that the risk that Herman Miller and Apple took in these situations, uh, you know, paid off, obviously, because they doubled down on this sort of new idea. But I, I would say more significantly, and these are things that we talk about in people design quite a bit, is it's not just that first idea, but the truth is the initial success led to kind of a more innovative spirit in the company, which becomes kind of a cultural issue. And, you know, Apple's first wave of iMacs were successful, but really led to iPhone and iPad and all the things that Apple has become today. Similarly, Herman Miller's initial experiments in, in modern furniture um, isn't what has sustained them all these years, of course. Amazon is another example we point to in the article where we talk about how, first of all, as we all probably are well aware, Amazon is the most uh, valuable company in the world today. Um, but it's interesting that if you dig into you know, the, the history and what Jeff Bezos, the founder, uh, considers to be valuable as a company in terms of how, they, how he navigates change, how, how he will cite on very, very many occasions how often they try to copy others and have actually failed. And in many ways, Amazon has been built to uh, not copy others. And, you know, they, he talks about how their wins tends to be, tend to be slow because they're often inventing or reinventing an entire category. But it's, it's an interesting point of view. And it's something that he's sort of brought on from, from the beginning. His first letter to shareholders, he talked about this idea of day one. And you may all have read about this in the past. But I love what he, he wrote in there, how he describes what day two is, which is day two is stasis followed by irrelevance, followed by excruciating, painful decline, followed by death. And that's why it's always day one. That's pretty dramatic, but it's pretty interesting, but it's interesting to think about how we are in a fairly dramatic situation right now, right? So this COVID-19 crisis has made it day one for a lot of organizations. It's an emergency, right? For many parts of your organizations, you all who are listening here today. Um, and there's been a lot of discussion about how, you know, what will, what will emerge in the wake of these changes? Um, and, and in some respects, I mean, there's, there's the phrase new normal has been floated around. I was just reading a Twitter feed, in fact, talking about how people are trying to ban that word because new normal is kind of only, only somewhat useful. But it is useful to recognize that, you know, a return to what happened before may never actually come. So it's interesting to think about what, you know, what does it look like, not just obviously from, from the standpoint of Neocon, but the industry itself. You know, is that, will there be more significant changes in work culture? Um, certainly the fact that we're all quarantined in our homes and being forced, uh, if even the, most, even the most reluctant people are being forced to figure out how to use platforms like Zoom and work from home and um, work in more asynchronous ways. And, you know, it could be that there's the confluence of the, you know, this, this push uh, past a bit of a tipping point 
you know, the need, you know, the, the drive to save money, the maturing platforms that we're all on today, not to mention just sort of generational expectations may reshape everyone's expectations about work. But circling back to, to Neocon for a moment, it's interesting, you know, so Neocon, it's an interesting question about, you know, what, what role does Neocon play um, in terms of, you know, in terms of the industry itself and how players, a lot of changes were happening anyway. I mean, if you consider how Noel and Herman Miller and others have actually left the merchandise mart, um, it's interesting to think about how, you know, how dependent are we on these physical places and physical shows. Um, and, you know, there may be more and more pressure to, to deliver content virtually, not just work virtually, but deliver content virtually. And, you know, as I kind of articulated in the article, that, you know, trade shows are a lot of things. In addition to being, you know, business meetings, they're a boondoggle for many. Um, but, but, but in addition to that, it's, it's kind of a, it's an opportunity to meet with customers and have a sales meeting. And it's, it's a way to show off your best environment and your products. It's a way to take clients out to dinner and others and partners um, and to celebrate. And I think, you know, even more significantly, it kind of has this sort of sense of, you know, identity or meaning for the industry in the marketplace. And if we didn't all show up in Chicago once a year, you know, how do we think about the industry itself? But clearly there are new paths being forged. Um, and Amazon is a, is a great example of how we all used to think that buying books required going to bookstores. So, you know, from our perspective, it's a way to start rethinking some of these things, both the kind of the smaller level in a sense with Neocon, but in a larger sense of where the industry might be going. Um, the other thing I like to uh, lean on is that Drucker talked about is how the purpose of a business is to create a customer, which is a great way to think about it, not to serve a customer or market to the customer, but to actually create a customer. So how do you do that? Um, we have ideas about that at People Design, of course, but there's, you know, there's a lot of interesting ways to sort of think about it. Um, there's no question that, at least in my mind, there, you know, at a, a very challenging time like this is is the kind of opportunity that can forge new leaders or create leaders. And, you know, leaders are, you know, it, it's interesting is they, uh, the way I think about leadership is, you know, leaders decide what problems to solve. And so what problem is there to solve today? And we have ideas about that. I mean, from our perspective, the, the, the key issues are some confluence of business value, brand perception and customer experience. Um, Another way to think about it is, I, I, I heard just recently that, that kind of an anecdote that I like quite a bit, which is the idea that managers versus leaders, managers manage the present and leaders manage the future. It really begs the question of what the future is, right? So how do you start to think about what might sort of come next? Um, and we have some ideas along those lines, but um, I'm going to pause there. And that's a little bit of a summary of kind of what we talked about in, in the article. And, but we welcome your questions um, if, if you like, and otherwise Jake and I can kind of banter back and forth on some of these topics. If you'd like to get into anything specific, I'd love to, to, to embellish wherever it makes sense. Yeah, thank you, Kevin. Um, and uh, everyone listening, uh, feel free to jump in either, you know, so we've got everyone on mute just to kind of uh, subdue the background noise. But if you have a question, feel free to click the raise hand button and we'll keep an eye on that. Otherwise, um, jump into the Q&A uh, chat. We've got our eyes on it, um, and, um, and we can go from there. Um, Kevin, one of the questions that, uh, that a listener submitted um, via email um, earlier was this that, um, and I'll just read this. 
um, says, with so many people working from home for the first time, experiencing the flexibility it offers, and companies learning that productivity doesn't suffer, will more and more companies start to embrace remote work as a standard policy, and how will workplaces change as a result? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really pertinent question. I mean, obviously, it's particularly for this industry, right? And I think, um, in fact, so one of the things I'll mention here is that um, we just, so we're just in the process of, of producing the next article uh, along these slides where we actually get into some of these issues and talk about how the, the role of technology and, and how that starts to perhaps, you know, shape what workplaces might be like. Um, but I will say here that I think, um, so first of all, I think that the, the idea of remote work is not new, but I do believe that this event, as I mentioned a moment ago, may be a bit of a tipping point. I mean, the combination of everyone being, being pushed into this more aggressively than they might have even, you know, desired, um, coupled with, you know, generational changes, technology evolution, you know, we may be at this moment where, you know, it may be more embraced. Now, there's there are, there are definitely, there are companies out there that have been evangelizing this approach for, for quite a while. So Automatic, which is the company that produces WordPress. WordPress is, of course, the, the, the website platform that hosts, you know, a huge number of uh, websites that are on the internet today. Or even companies like Basecamp, you're familiar with that software service platform. Um, not just the platforms themselves, but the companies themselves are 100% virtual. And they really, and they employ thousands of people around the world you know, they, they strongly encourage this idea of being able to work from home and so forth. I don't think every company is going to jump on that bandwagon 100%. But I think there's no question that this push will continue and that will have an effect on offices. So what does that mean? I think, I think that some of these trends we've already seen, um, mm -hmm. I think that this, this event um, in some ways is a, uh, will just accelerate changes that perhaps are already uh, underway. Um, the, but some of them are, I think, I think a smaller footprint, I think, um, flexible, more multifunctional spaces and more shared spaces are, are certainly going to happen, have occurring in kind of the more, the, the places to convene. Um, but I think one of the, one of the biggest questions and the kind of the question that we're trying to think through in terms of this other article is, you know, what, what can't you do from home? You know, what really requires two people to be in the same room at the same time, and particularly in the, you know, where this, the, the changes that are coming from this, uh, this health crisis, it may change our perspective on, you know, when is it really important for two people to be in the same room at the same time? And so what, what is the, you know, how does, how do those offices start to change? So I think smaller footprint, I think more flexible, I think more shared, but again, thinking more specifically about the use cases of what they are trying to support for an actual office. Well, and that's interesting. I mean, one of the one of the things that we've uh, learned just from our work and, and doing research with uh, the A and D community um, is that we've noticed a uh, a shift in in what types of products and what are being specified and from what companies they're being specified from. So things like you know IKEA um, are, are are finding their ways into you know these these different types of mood boards and and uh, office spaces. Um, where do you see, I guess I'm, I guess my question is kind of building off of that. Do you see that, um, this, uh, exposure to, you know, people working from home and trying to open up their, their home space and make it a workspace, 
do you think that it will accelerate this trend of uh, you know substitutes or new threats uh, for manufacturers? Um, how do you see that that evolving? I mean, I think I think that work. I think that companies that have been focused on. You think about the office furniture, the business, and you know what this other this new article starts to explore a bit is the relationship between offices between furniture and work essentially if we start in some ways decoupling them what's happening is that some of the work is not as dependent on furniture as it used to be or it's happening in different places um, i think there's no doubt it's going to it's going to start changing the landscape of how people think about office furniture in general and i think that i think it's likely that there will be a continued kind of push in the direction of working from home which begs the question of where those where are those pieces of furniture coming from and who's buying them. Again, this is not a new topic. I mean, this has been something right. that's been out there in the marketplace for quite a long time. And yet I think that, you know, there, there's, there will be an increased sense of this. And I think that there will be increased on the customer side. I think there'll be increased companies that are, you know, either, you know, they're looking at, at as a strategic choice to slim down their corporate real estate deliberately. And, um, and what does that mean in terms of like, what kind of an office did they need, which is what we talked to, touched on a moment ago, but then also what furniture is at home? Who buys it? Where does it, where do they get it? I mean, as, as you say, I think it starts to blur, at least on the surface, it starts to blur kind of B2C and B2B channels, uh, but begs lots of questions about installation and maintenance and standards and ergonomics and all of those kinds of things. Um, but I think that's, you know, I, I think the industry is likely to go there to some degree. Or for the, let's put it this way, I think companies that are targeting that segment um, will, will do well. Because I think that, you know, people will, people will make do. But I think what happens is that the companies, so for example, the automatic and base camp, I'm quite certain that the way these companies work, because what they do is that they save the money that they would have put into the office and they give it to their staff and the staff can, can you know, equip their office, which is still cheaper than having an office. Again, not everyone's going to go in that direction, but you can certainly imagine this continuing to push in that direction. Well, so, so let me ask you this. I think what you're hitting on there um, is a shift in experience and how, well, product is, is product will always be important and you need to have, I think what I'm hearing you say is that companies will need to have product that could fit both scenarios would be great. You know, you know, home to big office and everything in between, uh, which would be great. But what you're also saying there is um, the differentiator is in the experience of delivering, um, first ordering, delivering, and installing uh, these pieces. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I completely, I, I think it's this question of, you know, the, what, you know, the idea of ordering, you know, a volume of products and delivering them all in one place. I mean, that has its, it's, you know, enough challenges in and of itself in terms of, you know, obviously getting standards right and, and delivering on time and coordinating with the build out. I, again, all those things, realities will continue to exist. But I also think that an organization that can start to think about how to serve, and you know, an individual who is working in a larger corporate context, but maybe has a budget or, um, or some, you know, some level of autonomy, perhaps, or is also trying to work within some kind of a framework or standard. Um, and then, you know, the, you think about like, what is, what does specification look like? Um, 
what does delivery look like? How do they get these products? Mm-hmm. Um, what happens if it breaks? And again, it, these, these are things that, you know, I think previously would have seemed completely incomprehensible, but if we're, you know, we're, we're at a, we're at a stage where, you know, um, especially where we're starting to learn. I mean, I, my, my phone, you know, died on me at the beginning of this, <laughs> this whole crisis. And I had to like ship the phone back and then the phone delivered the, like literally like the following day. And of course the phone is not a chair, but you know, I mean, with, with new innovators, I mean, people are having cars delivered and purchased online with, you know, some of these new car startups. And I think that the way the economy is shifting toward um, direct to consumer um, mm-hmm. across many different channels um, or many different industries, I should say, is going to make that more and more rea- of a reality. Um, so does that so put, be, yeah. Oh, go ahead. So does that put a higher emphasis on certain touch points over others? Yeah, I think it's, well, I think that there's, a, there's going to be a question about decision-making, mm. first of all, about, again, as I mentioned, there is, there is this question about what level of autonomy does, if the furniture is going into your home, will companies give their employees greater autonomy you know, or will they, will they need to follow the standard? I mean, standards, you know, standards have to do with performance, but they also are around aesthetics and brand. So there's kind of this question of like, what if everybody wants a different chair? Um, and is that okay? And, you know, or is that okay within a certain price range? Um, or is it okay within a certain price range within a particular supplier? Um, I mean, there are interesting questions there about the decision, but then there's the question, and to your point, there's the whole sort of life cycle of the product itself. Mm-hmm. Um, delivery, maintenance, you know, what if something breaks on the product? Can I call somebody to fix it? Or, you know, on some level, again, these are, at some point, they become more like consumer paradigms because it's not as if we don't have issues with our house or if our furnace breaks or something, we have a repair person who comes to the, comes to the door. We're just not used to, thinking that way in terms of this this commercial office world but i can imagine you can certainly imagine it wouldn't take too much to sort of imagine a business that is targeting and sort of focusing on these things right and and um you touched on this this kind of feeding so one is the the service design experience of you know how do i order how do i receive how do i install kind of a situation um, another view is looking at the communication of, and um, you had kind of touched on this earlier, you know, without Neocon, um, you know, that, that suggests, and especially right now when we're all um, uh, social distancing, quarantining, you know, you have to communicate with customers in some familiar ways, some different ways. Um, I guess I'm curious on your thoughts on, on, on two things. One is, um, how might we think about the way that we market or communicate to our customers differently? And then the second piece of that is, um, so one is on touch points and the tactic. The other is on the idea of timing. And I think you've been uh, an advocate of, you know, one of the pros about Neocon is that it, um, it gets us all kind of synced up and moving in a direction and there's a flow to the industry. However, that also creates a, a lot of white noise at a very particular point in time. Um, talk a little bit about uh, timing in the sense of, does this, does this free us from that cycle? Um, and, and what touch points might we look at uh, differently? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely feel like the, 
it's interesting. And I, you know, as I mentioned in the article, you know, I think everyone in this industry has a little bit of a love hate relationship with, uh, mm-hmm. with Neocon. I think, and, and you and I both have experienced with, with other clients and in other industries, how much sales cycles and marketing investments and so on are, are driven by the kind of unnatural meteor that, it, that often occurs in a lot of industries, uh, um, which is like the big trade show, the big global trade show in some location. And how that, you know, it creates an un, I, I do believe it creates an unhealthy way to think about product launches and, um, and you know, sort of, in, in sort of marketing investment, you know, so it, it becomes kind of, at least, you know, within this industry, it certainly, it forces all of these, all of these competitors to, you know, try to get their act together once a year, at least, right, <laughs> which I don't think is, is not all that healthy, because like, ideally, there should be other ways to get news out there. And, it, and it's true that especially, you know, the global competitors are getting more accustomed to other trade shows in other parts of the world. Um, and, and, you know, to some degree it's happening um, more around the clock, but I think it, you know, I think it, it should really, it shouldn't be, you know, the, the, the time to have a brand statement together isn't necessarily, you know, only when Neocon occurs and launching a product whenever everyone else is launching a product at Neocon may not be the most advantageous. I mean, it's another example that we didn't mention in the article, but, you know, Apple quite famously stopped going to the, um, uh, the big uh, uh, consumer electronics show in Vegas. They started launching their products out of sync with everyone else deliberately because they were trying to get out from all of the noise that was being made in the marketplace. And so, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that there's no question that I think that, you know, as everyone shifts I think, you know, as we think about tools and so on, more and more is going to be the expectation for digital delivery is obviously is kind of self-evident, right? But we, and we know this, right? I mean, in terms of what everything will, everything, anything that can be made as a digital transaction eventually will be. Anything that can be automated will be event over time, which I think is something that, you know, trying to look forward, what, what is that? you know, what does that mean? So what does that mean for a sales process, but, or even a trade show? I don't, I don't think the trade shows will go away, but it could start to decouple what it means, decouple some of, some of the, you know, the reasons why you sell from the trade show in the first place and actually what, you know, what other, other, if other activities start happening in other, other times of the year in a more sort of methodical way. No, that's good. Hey, um, it looks like uh, Sue Ellen, I don't know if you're, uh, I see you popping up there in the chat. I don't know if you have a question um, or uh, just saying hello. Is there um, any, any question that you'd like to ask? Maybe just saying hi. Can you hear me? Yep. Hey, yeah. there you are. Yeah. Okay. Well, I didn't completely form this question yet because I was going to think as I typed, but basically, I wanted to ask if you could talk a little bit about the aspects of the trade show that are the human elements that you can't really very easily substitute in other modalities. So I understand about product launches and information and staggering what we share with the industry. But what about the human aspect, the actual, you know, softer things of running into people that you'd only see there or the evening dinners, or even more importantly, the physical testing of product and understanding the scale and how pieces relate to each other, that part of thing. Yeah. You know, I think, I think that there are, there are, yeah. So you mentioned two things. There's the human part and the product part. I do think that the, I think it's, it's, it's interesting. One of the things that um, we talk about as a, 
uh, design innovation firm is we, we talk about this concept of a boundary object, which is, you know, so if we think about prototypes as a boundary object, which is a, a, a phrase we borrow from psychology, which is this idea of, you know, sometimes you can talk about an idea and as soon as you draw a squiggle on a whiteboard or show a, a prototype of a, of a product or something, it's a boundary object between you and the, and the people you're working with. It's a way to kind of facilitate conversation. What's funny is that I think about, I think about trade shows as kind of like a large boundary object for the industry, right? So in some ways, you know, there are, there are trade shows and products that are, are in, these, in these showrooms. And, um, and, uh, it, but really a lot of the real value comes from kind of these, what seem like ancillary things, but in some ways they're the primary ones, right? It's the conversation and the, the um, you know, the, the meetups and all of those kinds of things. What's interesting is that you could, you could actually have some of those meetups and conversations um, even absent the product. Like you might have a different kind of a boundary object conceivably. And what I mean by that is, you know, it's interesting how, so I know you guys are all probably aware of, you know, the effort by uh, the Mart and Bifma to create, they, they were hoping to create a, a kind of a parallel event along with Neocon called Confluence, where they were trying to work toward having uh, more of a content uh, rich uh, uh, kind of a, an event, more like a conference, more like a, uh, not less of a trade show and more like a, a, a content oriented conference. Um, and I think that was a way to, you know, obviously build out Neocon in a more substantive way. And, and that alone creates a different kind of a boundary object that moves away from product and more toward ideas in a sense. And I think that that, you know, it's, it's unfortunate with the way things have turned out this year that that's not going to happen because I think, you know, personally, I think that, you know, it's a progressive step, regardless of the details. It was, it's a progressive idea to start thinking about ideas because ideas could be another way to kind of uh, bind people together. But because I think, I think that the, to your, the second point you made though, about the, the physicality of these products, that is also true. It is, it's definitely helpful to have all these products in the same place. I do think that's, that many of the competitors are starting to question the value of doing that all at the same time in the same place. I mean, I think this is partly why Noel and, and Herman Miller and others have started to exit the mark because they've started to feel like, you know, and on one hand, they have the opportunity to try to get uh, have the salespeople run through, run a client through the showroom and show them the product. But the problem is they've got it, you know, they're running through all of the showrooms and they're, they're almost stacking up all of the competitors right next to you. So, you know, there's, which isn't necessarily the best environment to show the physicality. I think that there are, there, there need to be opportunities to see these physical products. And we're talking about physical products that exist, that have scale and finishes and fabrics and all of those kinds of things that are natural. Um, there needs to be a place for that. It may not have to be a trade show is my, is my first thought. The second thought is I, I think that we may start to have to change our behaviors or assumptions about how often we actually have to have those physical environments, because I think we will all become more and more accustomed to digital kinds of experiences. And some of the things that we're assuming have to happen, just like we've assumed certain meetings and collaboration have to happen, um, in the same room, it could very well be that product details can be communicated that way too. So I don't think it's going to go away entirely, but I think that um, we'll start we'll start to rely more on digital means. Kevin, one of the things, um, just kind of building on that, one of the things I, I I think I hear you saying is almost like a separation of um, you know using those human to human moments as uh, 
for the value that they provide and not for the things that detract from the value and using other means to communicate things that are a little bit more, uh, for lack of a better phrase, run of the mill. Um, is that, uh, is there, is there an element of that? And then as you, as you think through that, um, you know, if we're using those human to human moments, as Sue Ellen mentioned, um, you know, then we can start to change the things like what are, um, what are the ideas that we're trying to communicate? What are these different thoughts and relationships that we're trying to build? Um, but still, you know, as you mentioned, we've got to figure out a different balance for how to uh, connect with um, each other, but also the products that we're, we're presenting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that, that's, that's a great way to say it. I, I think you're right. I agree. I mean, I think that there, there are, it, it's, you know, it's there, I think that there are sort of macro, they may be generational, uh, but there are macro shifts going on in terms of where humans are currently involved and where do they need to be involved. And it sounds, it can, it could risk sounding a little bit harsh, I think. But if we think about, I mean, there's no question that, um, and again, you know, bringing back to, you know, an example like Amazon, where, you know, we might have assumed that having a local bookstore and having a local expert in that bookstore who knew something about books and may even know you personally and knows your taste or maybe, you know, you can walk in and have a guide, that that seemed like a necessary thing. Mm -hmm. There's no question that it's a nice thing. But, it, you know, I think that Amazon has started to prove that, okay, it's not, not entirely necessary. Or at least if there is some version of a recommendations engine, that it's going to start looking more like what Amazon is trying to do now or what Netflix is trying to pull off in terms of entertainment. So I think it's a, I think that some of those interactions are, I mean, human, human, human to human interactions aren't going away. I mean, Facebook wouldn't succeed if it weren't, but it's also, those aren't in the same room always. Um, and there are some interactions that may not, that may not, we, we shouldn't make the, the, you know, the assumption that they all are going to take the same place in the same time. Yeah. And I think that the many, there's no question that even I, you know, I believe that I mean, depending on your outlook of what, you know, what's going to happen uh, post the, uh, the crisis, um, Neocon will likely go on in 2021, but almost guaranteed, it may look different. I mean, I think the trade shows in general, like getting large groups of people together <laughs> will be, I, I think that we're, we're likely looking and this is true, I think, for trade shows, but it's probably also likely true for offices where we were just having a discussion the other day about how I think that the, if you think about how airports and security or going to a baseball game or you know, a sports game um, or concert looks very different in the post 9-11 world from a security standpoint, I think it's quite likely, likely that the new protocols for what is clean in an office um, or for that matter, an event is going to look very different at the next five, 10, 20 years is my guess. Because I think that, you know, that if you, if you, you know, the literature about, um, obviously we've got this, 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 this COVID-19 challenge, you know, we, one hopes that we will get to a vaccine and so forth. But there's a lot of people who say that, you know, this virus will be with us and with the human race for some time. And we're just going to be about containing it. And there may be other viruses that come along too. So I think they just, you know, there may be an eye-opening moment for uh, viral infection control um, in the same way that 9-11 was an eye-opening event for uh, terrorism.
Yeah, and then uh, it looks like Leslie Roberts uh, just uh, posted a comment. Um, uh, the neighborhood bookstore isn't uh, quote unquote necessary, but it is the backbone of the quality of life. Uh, let's not confuse Amazon's convenience and price with the dissemination of local economies, small business and human relationships and a sense of community. Um, I agree. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead, Jake. Go ahead, Jake. Yeah, no, I was just gonna say, I think, I think that's right on. I mean, I think that, um, you know, I think it, it's kind of like um, the extremes make things more special to some degree. Um, and that sense of community, I think one of the things that we've seen across all the different industries we've served is a desire, a sense of, uh, a desire for a sense of belonging. And, um, you know, a lot of what we talk about is helping organizations and industries uh, find balance, uh, or recreate the balance that they have with, um, with their audiences, with their clients, with their communities, and trying to figure out, you know, as you see the rise of uh, convenience and price through tools like Amazon or any digital tool, it makes those human relationships and those human touch points that much more special. Um, and, uh, you know, I know, Kevin, one of the things that you've talked about um, is, and I can't remember exactly where, where you heard this, but you were listening to a speaker talk about how um, the, it's almost like as, as things start to, you know, whether it's a, um, a franchise spreading across the country, whether it's, you know, digital stores like Amazon or even Walmart going digital, some of the biggest differentiators are the sense of space and geography that we have and the relationships that are around us. And how that is, uh, you know, in essence, what are we calling people to and what are we asking them to join uh, becomes more and more uh, about that, um, that mindset and that relationship and that sense of community. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, yeah, I, I agree. I think that there's a lot of, there's a lot there. And, and Leslie, I mean, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that there's, it's, 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 it's one thing to look at this as a, as a commercial exercise. And that's, so when I make the comments about Amazon, it's a pretty, ruthless kind of you know the le a cold lens of like getting books to people and in the and you know in some version we have to look at this industry the same way it's getting furniture to people in the same way i think that there's no question though that i mean that the digital disruption that we're seeing across industries is starting to change the game in many many ways that we are not yet prepared for i believe you know so there are things like there there are whole industries that are that have been based on uh, a relative monopoly based on geography, right? So the general store, uh, a bank, um, schools, higher ed, um, all of these things are, you know, so the general store is already getting, um, you know, has gotten steamrolled by Amazon. Um, banks, we are, we're working with banks, sometimes we're working with the bank right now, that, you know, a local bank is going to have increasingly a hard time dealing with you know, massive global entities that are going to deliver high quality digital products on your phone. Um, similarly, a school, right? So schools that have a relative monopoly based on geography um, are going to lose some of that edge in the era of distance learning and online learning, which again is another thing that is just a huge accelerant, right? At this very moment in time, I think it's going to start changing how people, I, I've actually started to wonder the other change that Jake was saying is, it may start to have a very different push toward a different kind of sense of localism and belonging. I'm not quite sure, right? But as we all become kind of these global digital citizens, um, and then but by the same token, we're all stuck at home. <laughs> what does that mean over time? You know, does this have a more lasting effect beyond, uh, beyond this, beyond working at home, but it's just even our, 
our relative connection. And I agree. I think that the what was lost through Amazon's innovation from the local bookstore and a sense of community has not yet been regained. But I don't think that that doesn't necessarily mean that it won't be regained in some other manner. I think that it will. I think that if there's a true, I mean, our, our belief at People Design is, you know, all of these, all value is going to be derived from, you know, human unmet needs. And if there's an unmet need there, there's a business model there somewhere. Well, so Kevin, I want to, um, that, that brings up another point that I kind of want to talk about here as we're, um, as we keep moving along. One of the things that uh, this article you mentioned was that, you know, all profit is derived from risk from uh, that Peter Drucker quote. Um, and you're kind of touching on it here. It makes me think about the question of pacing and speed. And, you know, some of us, uh, a lot of us have kind of been pushed off the cliff, the cliff and uh, asked to, you know, what, what's the quote, make the, create the, man, make the airplane as you're flying kind of a thing. Um, but there's a risk to, you know, there's a risk to change whether it's going too fast or too slow. Um, how should teams think about the pacing? And, and, you know, while we all think about that, you know, we're, we're familiar with the dangers of moving too slow, right? We, we always have that Kodak example in the back of our minds, how they passed on, uh, on digital uh, photography. Um, but, but there's also some dangers that come with moving too fast. Could you talk a little bit about the dangers of moving too fast and how might teams think about determining what pace is right for them? Yeah, it's, it's a good, it's, it's interesting because this, this event right now, and in some ways, the backstory of kind of this article and what, you know, Jake, you and I have been working on every day with clients is the, um, I read somewhere that some of the biggest innovations in, in most business, you know, probably 95% of the time come from a crisis. And then the other 5% maybe comes from, you know, a leader with some truly extraordinary vision. But which is to say, sometimes the leader has kind of the the vision and the courage to kind of take some really big steps. Um, but most of the time, organizations are almost pushed into it. The interesting, and, and as I mentioned about Herman Miller and Apple earlier, I think that the the interesting situation we're in is that we're suddenly many of us are in a crisis. So in terms of speed. I think that we may suddenly be much more compelled than we were even a month ago <laughs> to, to actually act. Um, but when it comes to, I mean, as you know, I mean, we, we think about it at People Design, we think about this how far, how fast kind of dynamic, as you said, you know, there's sort of the speed, how fast can we go? How far do we go? How aggressive are we going to be? I, I think about it on two levels. There's, there's kind of an industry speed and then there's kind of a company or team speed. Right. And as you know, you and I, one of, one of our diagnostics at People Design, you know, we, we talk about, first of all, there's this industry speed question. And some industries are already moving at light speed and some industries move quite slowly. And so part of the evaluation is how are we, what are we doing compared to everyone else? Um, which isn't to say you should define what you're doing based on everyone else, but you should be aware of what is the industry speed. Because if your speed is, if you're already slower than the industry, you've got a problem. So at the very least, you want to maybe outpace the industry if you can't as an, as an objective. But more closer to home, there's kind of this company speed question, right? Because how fast can your team move? And it gets into questions of what are the skill sets on that team? Um, you know, who, do you have the right people on the bus uh, in the Jim Collins kind of way? Um, but ultimately, there's no question that 
you know, there's a lot of discussion about agile teams, agility, and how, how agile can you be when we know that the future is kind of uncertain. I mean, there's nothing, nothing more that, that sort of highlights this point than our current crisis, but I think that, yeah, we're, we're, in a, we're in a time of great change. And so trying to understand, you know, how fast or how slow, I think that, you know, trying to understand the dynamics of like, how fast is the company, how fast is the industry moving? How do we define the industry and how fast is it moving? Um, because the challenge there is that, you know, if, you, if you're the local, going back to the bookstore, you can't only look at the local bookstore business moving because you might miss the lightning bolt that's coming in from, from Silicon Valley. But um, there's also this quick, the reality of like how fast can your team move? I think that the, the main issue has to do with, you know, the, the transformation that needs to occur, regardless of how fast you're moving, is being a focus on kind of what are your new objectives around agility and adaptability and knowing, or do you have the right people to actually get you to where you need to go? Because in part, um, where you need to go isn't entirely obvious today. So, um, and, and again, everyone, feel free to shoot any questions in the chat or the Q&A or, um, or raise your hand. We'll, we'll try to find you here in the list. Um, Kevin, that's interesting. It, it, you know, when we talk about agility in teams, it's, it's kind of one thing to, to talk about. I don't know if we're, maybe we're straying away from the, the top course subject here, but um, it makes me think about the importance of value propositions and culture. And, um, you know, one of the things is, especially with B2B companies, I think, but B2C also, is what are you rooting your value proposition in? Because in order to stay agile, um, you have to, you have to be going for something, something bigger than a product, um, but actually like a human need or, or, or something meaning. Um, and then, and then having the culture to, um, tolerate, uh, reward, um, mitigate, uh, you know, behavior change and to facilitate, I guess, behavior change around those pieces. Um, what, what kind of, whether it's on value propositions or, or behaviors and, and habit change, what kind of patterns um, have, have you seen uh, or have been picking up on? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, first of all, I mean, to be to your point, and this is, you know, you know, we, we're in the relatively advantageous position of you guys, you're asking me leading questions, which <laughs> relate to what we do. I mean, I think it's, you know, we're, we obviously, you know, I think from our perspective, the, the value proposition starts with what, what people value and that, that value proposition can cross and in fact, increasingly should cross between customers, but also staff. So it becomes kind of this question of, you know, there's been a lot of discussion in recent years about purpose-driven companies, Mm -hmm. um, or Simon Sinek's kind of start with why kind of, you know, sensibility. And I think that is true that the, the nature of future focused organizations, um, that have a sense of continuity, um, and longevity are organizations that will have a sense of purpose. And that purpose is, you know, there's a different translation. It's kind of two sides of a coin. Right. Um, but it's, but it's, it's a similar purpose for both, both employees as well as customers. And that that's kind of, you know, there's kind of this value exchange that's happening there. And there's, there's no question, I sort of referenced it earlier in terms of, you know, what Herman Miller and Apple became after they doubled down on kind of an innovative idea. You know, the real issue is that they, it led to, you know, a, 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 an innovative spirit in the company or an innovative culture in those companies, which, 
you know, gave rise to uh, later successes that helped define what they are. Um, I think it becomes a question of, yeah, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot to, to dig into in terms of, you know, what are those habits? You know, what are the, what is the character of those teams? Um, you know, as I say, Amazon at this moment is kind of an endlessly fascinating organization to look at because of how, you know, they started many, many new categories, but also, you know, just even like, just as, as I mentioned earlier about the idea of day one, or for that matter, the, you know, there are the other kinds of, you know, anecdotes I've certainly read about and you all probably have too, but around things like how, you know, how they run meetings and they don't use PowerPoints and they have all distributed notes and read them in silence <laughs> before they get started. And I mean, there's, there's, I think that there are serious questions about patterns of work and patterns of culture, which I think, you know, will start to build teams that have greater agility and resilience going forward, which I think, you know, becomes, you know, it's, it re all of this starts to sound a little bit like just making lip service to these kind of, you know, what se may seem like touchy-feely ideas. But the truth is, I think that this is these are the kinds of organizations that are going to survive. Right. Right. And, and, um, and knowing that we're kind of coming up to the, the top of the hour, uh, Kevin, I just got uh, one more question for you. Um, and, and everyone, uh, thank you so much for listening so far. If, if you have any questions that we didn't touch on or if there are themes that you'd like to dig deeper into, please feel free to either uh, you know, hit our website, fill out the contact form. Uh, you can shoot Kevin and I an email. The emails are really simple. It's just kevin at peopledesign.com or jake at peopledesign.com. And of course, feel free to subscribe uh, to those links uh, on the screen there. Um, Kevin, my last question for you is, uh, oh, wait, 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 wait. Uh, oh, here's, here's a question that just popped up uh, from a listener that I want to make sure we get to. So um, the question is, um, do you expect to see a significant trend in domestic manufacturing and specification? Um, do you also expect to see manufacturers whose facilities are in the states that, are, that don't have shelter-in-place restrictions uh, taking a lead in the market? Um, do you, so let me, I'm just going to repeat that. Uh, it says, do you expect to see, so it's two-parter, first part, do you expect to see a significant trend in domestic manufacturing in, and specification? Secondly, do you also expect to see manufacturers whose facilities are in the states that don't have shelter-in-place restrictions, uh, essentially using, it sounds like using that as an opportunity to take a lead in the marketplace? Yeah, so I, I'll, I'll take the second one first. I think the second one seems more tactical in the near term in terms of like mm -hmm. taking sort of opportunistically taking advantage of, you know, who does or does not have shelter in place restrictions. I think, um, I, you know, I think that that's, I don't think that that's going to be a significant advantage going forward for sure. I mean, I think that this stay in place situation is, um, is temporary. I think it's going to be it's going to keep shifting around each state. I don't think, I think it's a more systemic problem. And I think that, you know, there may be some short-term wins, but that's not a long-term strategy for sure. I do think though, that the, the larger trend around domestic manufacturing is a pretty interesting one because I think that, you know, there's no question that having, you know, Walmart, is one of, one, of, one of the key innovators, right? That basically forged a path to manufacturing in China and driving prices down. And that, you know, nearly all industries have started to follow to the point where, 
uh, as you all know, there's so much manufacturing is happening elsewhere. And it's like, and it, and it, you know, I think there's, there's a little bit of a, a simultaneous sort of self, self-awareness when there's kind of this, this, this immediate of like a ma- uh, shortage of masks, for example, for healthcare workers in the, in the U.S., and suddenly realizing that, oh, they're all manufactured elsewhere. Oh, we can't make them, <laughs> you know? And there's a sudden moment of like, okay, how resilient and agile are we as a country, right? Let alone a company. So I, you know, I tend to think that, I don't know if there'll be a significant trend. I mean, I think that there's no question that the, 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 the routes that have been paved around global supply chains are not going to suddenly disappear. There's, we're not suddenly going to get so inwardly looking that um, that they're going to go away. But I do think that there, you know, that this is going to be a significant push to be clearer about how resilient are our supply chains. And, um, and also, you know, there's obviously been a huge push toward domestic manufacturing uh, in the, in the States. And I think even with the rise of frankly, a middle-class um it's starting to make it, you know, very, you know, what can you do to change, change the dynamic in terms of whether or not it's that much significantly cheaper to produce items there. I mean, I do think that there will be a continued race to the bottom in terms of trying to find the cheapest way to produce, the cheapest place to produce anything, because it'll probably move from places like China and it may move to Africa or who knows where, right? I mean, there's, there's, there's that will happen in sort of the global, you know, sort of race to the bottom. But I do think that there will be a moment of self-reflection here, I think, in terms of you know, at an industry, industry level, but as a, really as a whole country, to be clearer about where things are made and whether they really whether there's that much an advantage to produce them elsewhere um, when we have this sort of flattening of the economy. That's great. And um, and again, uh, th- uh, if you guys have any follow-up questions or want to dive into any themes, uh, please feel free to email us. Again, that's Kevin at uh, PeopleDesign.com, Jake at PeopleDesign.com. Uh, please feel free to subscribe to, um, uh, you know, Kevin's newsletter, uh, which that link was just on the previous page there, um, or there are office hours. Um, and Kevin, the, the last piece, the last question that I would have for you is um, just thinking about the moment in time that we're in right now, the, uh, the loss of Neocon uh, for this year, the, the way that we've kind of all been kind of pushed off this cliff and forced to respond and find interesting ways to respond. Uh, you know, what, what would you like uh, this industry, you know, if there's one thing that you could tell this industry, what, what would it be? And what would you want people to kind of take away from either this article or this session? Well, I think, I mean, so the, under the, you know, the, the, at the, the surface level is about this show and what we might do differently. Maybe pause to reflect about the value, about what is delivered there and how we do it. But a little bit deeper is really about leadership and risk-taking. I think that, um, you know, as we mentioned a moment ago, you know, sometimes we evaluate kind of like, what is the speed of the industry? And Jake, you and I have chatted about this on various occasions, you know, among ourselves and also with clients. You know, this is an industry that is not terribly, um, it, it, it's innovative on a product level, but it's sometimes not terribly innovative on, on, a, on a more macro level. And it's a kind of, it's kind of very, it's a little bit of a piecemeal industry. There is, it is heavily reliant on personal connections. And I'm, you know, I'm not arguing that we shouldn't have personal connections. I mean, quite the opposite, in fact, but I also believe that not all personal connections actually add to customer value. So I think that there's kind of a, you know, there is a moment we all have, I think, collectively to kind of pause and reflect on Neocon, 
but in terms of our overall company value propositions as a whole. And I think that, um, you know, we may all be forced to deal with this anyway, just give, because of the crisis in the economy. I mean, it could be that much of our business erodes anyway. And so we may, even if we didn't want to sort of face that issue previously, um, either either by choice or we may be, or by force, we may be uh, compelled to start to answer some really important questions about customer value and, um, and how we really remain uh, meaningful in the marketplace. Great. Well, uh, thank you everyone. Again, feel free to shoot us an email if you have any questions or uh, want to dig into any themes. Um, as you can tell, Kevin and I are kind of nerds about this stuff and, uh, and the industry. So always happy to chat. Um, again, peopledesign.com uh, forward slash subscribe if you want to get in on the newsletter. Um, and uh, thanks again, everyone, for, um, for taking the time and, and, and spending some time with us. Thank you all so much for your attention. Thanks for hanging in there with us. Appreciate it. And have a great day. Take care.